Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We are here to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Paul Vick. Paul is the principal and founder of Paul Vick Architects, an award-winning chartered architect's practice in London. Paul is also a fellow of the Royal Society of Architects itself. Uh, Paul, very warm welcome to you this morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning and uh, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure, Paul. I suppose, first and foremost, we should address the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that although we are seeing some green shoots as we move out of social restrictions, we are still somewhat in the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic, and we have been now for the best part of 14 months. So tell me, to what extent has all of this affected you and your business over this last year and a bit? Yes, architecture is a really interesting one. Um, not least because construction per se um, didn't stop. Um, there was a lot of sort of pauses at moments. There was caution. There were difficulties with supply chain, which still go on. Um, but per se, our industry was encouraged to keep going, um, which perhaps is strange in some ways, but in others, um, interesting. And um, yes, we've seen impacts on the builders themselves. We've seen um, impacts on clients um, where they may have got to a position where they were about to start on site and then stopping, putting it on pause. Um, and as architects, we're trying to juggle all of that at the same time and move forward. So, yeah, it was a, an increased challenge, it has to be said. Um, mm. I suppose as well that given that the construction industry is going to play an integral part in the government's recovery plan, the Build Back Better agenda, I guess it's quite easy for an outsider of the industry to think that things are starting to be all right now, now that social restrictions are being lifted. But I've spoken to various architects before, and they're still telling me that even now, there is still lingering uncertainty there, and some projects are still on hold and being given the green light to go ahead, because some firms are just not willing to sort of make the relevant investment yet. Is that something that you're seeing as well, that the sector's still in sort of a stasis mode? Um, so yes and no. Um, I would say we're more like in moving through a sort of pregnancy stage now mm. um, because it very much dep- depends on what sort of building you're, you're trying to build and to what end. Um, Construction away is carrying out the demands of what's needed to, you know, service society. So whether that is, um, for instance, you know, we're very privileged as architects. You know, we, we see the lens of the world through so many people's eyes. So, for example, we were doing a vision for a care home just as the pandemic hit. The regulations for care homes were changing. There's a whole raft of things changing. So. It was fascinating, if very sad, to see what was happening um, to these care homes. And um, coming out the other side, um, 
you know, how we go about doing a vision for how people can live longer, how you make a building that helps people live longer is very different. Um, not least is that you need more space if you want a communal area, whether that's a one-on-one space or, you know, one-on-six or even outside spaces, um, activity spaces. The nature of these has changed. Um, so that's a very tangible thing that we're seeing. Um, and the rules and regs that they've had to go through are incredible. Um, you know, um, at the same time, in another sector, it's sort of the private residential, um, some years ago, we did a first age to third age home, for example. So from the young married couple, if you like, all the way through to the elderly. Um, and part of that was about how do you create resilience within buildings? Um, and so we're seeing, a, while there has been a, there's definitely been a pause, I think you're right about that. Again, the nature of some of this has has come to the fore a little bit more. Um, and some things that weren't perhaps so important are becoming more valuable in a more widespread and understandable way to people. Um, and then on other sorts of projects, so um, we're working with a museum and with cafes, so we might talk about a footfall, a more public interface. How do they keep these places going? I mean, it's been very, very tough for them. Um, needless to say, they've gone more online but their numbers are way, way down, and it's been really hit them hard. Um, but what does this mean for the future? Because I don't think, as you say, that uncertainty hasn't gone away. Um, yeah. Mm. And when we talk about the future, I think it's quite clear that remote working practices are going to form some part of that, be that the entire way that a business operates or be that part of a more hybridized approach. Now, when it comes to flexible working models, I think what is very clear as well is that it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach and architecture as an industry is one where there's a great deal of benefit getting brains together in one room and working on certain projects. So when it comes to your sector specifically, do you think there is therefore room when COVID is no longer an immediate and present danger for the conventional office as it was to return in vogue? Um, I, I mean, you raised some really good points there. Yes, I mean, we found that working face-to-face is essential. The speed of which things happen mm. and need to happen, um, particularly to keep up with what the demands say of builders need on site or how fast clients want to move their projects forward. Um, yes, the, the ability to be able to pass pieces of paper around quite literally, put them in front of each other's nose and draw on them, and then someone interpreting it very differently, that sort of human interaction for creativity, I think, is essential. At the same time, within the creative process, and that's with in our own team and with all the other people we deal with, whether it's engineers, clients, um, you know, statutory bodies. We talk about time together and time apart, um, and we need a bit of both. I, I don't think there's any way around that um, for us really to do that well. Um, it's not like remote working is anything new in many ways. It's been going on for decades, mm. you know, um, and buildings and construction materials and designs, you know, happen globally with bits happening all over the all over the planet um, and prototyping and head offices might be in one place um, and you've certainly seen that in the UK 
they might then have different parts of manufacturer somewhere else, and they may have delivery, you know, and then obviously on site. You know, so, so that sort of sense of where things come from, I don't think has necessarily changed. And I, I think going forward, you ask about the future. I, in many ways, it, what has happened through COVID has been a, a catalyst, an acceleration of a lot of things that's been going on since post-war, up through the 60s and 70s. Mm. Um, and it's just, and there's, obviously life is not simple. It's complex. You know, there are lots of different strands of thinking economically, you know, moving from sort of linear economies to circular economies. That's been talked about for 40 years or so. Um, you know, and the notion of limits of growth, you know, how do we look at after our planet? These things come together within the COVID, I think. And the COVID has sort of, in this country in particular, that it's been very good in so many ways historically, cross-party, and I think often we take it for granted that there is a sense of order here, which a lot of the world doesn't have in the same way, a certain trust, um, notwithstanding a lot of what the media often says, within our system. And what has happened through COVID is that order has sort of been changed and is changing. And we're not used to the sort of sense of chaos or and you use the word uncertainty, mm. that is actually perfectly normal for the world. And through the architectural lens, you know, we're about creating order, things where you know where things go. You go to a certain place, you know it's there. You recognize the city, you recognize certain shops, you recognize people associated with that shop. You recognize, hopefully, an equity amongst our society to a certain extent. But this has all been turned on its head. And now we're facing... In some sort of way, I wouldn't say the architectural extreme equivalent is that of the blitz. If there are no buildings left, how do you identify where you are and what you're about? And it's very discombobulating. In a funny sort of way, the what I often call is the, the physical structures and the invisible structures. These invisible structures have all changed really quite radically. And these alternative ideas that have been developing to make the world a better place are coming to the fore. Um, and so the whole green agenda is being pushed hard, partly through government help, partly through, you know, a whole series of other initiatives that have been happening anyway. Um, and we're seeing that happen across society. Um, and yes, you mentioned the, you know, the government's growth plan and, mm. you know, th those 10 points or so that they identify cover pretty well the whole, the whole of society from investment and finance to equity, to zero carbon. Um, we deal with existing buildings and proposed buildings, very different strategies for these. So I see it's a huge reordering, and with reorder it can be very uncomfortable. Um, but I do see the it's a recombination at the same time of these processes. So for us, we with through the planning process, for example, so we have a 100% planning permission record, and we see this link between public and private, what you're allowed to do, what favors society, what favors the individuality, how do you get that balance to work? And some of the policy is there. Um, green requirements are increasing, although a little bit patchy across the country. Economic incentives are increasing in certain ways, and people will debate how successful certain things are. Um, 
So I see it sort of as a recombination of many of these things. And it's not something we should be afraid of because mm. we can rely on many things from the past that we already know and recombine them and then also look forward to the opportunities to come forward from it. That doesn't make it easy. doesn't mean it has been easy, comfortable. But I do see that there's a way forward and that gives me a lot of hope really. Mm. And if we talk about that sort of way forward a little bit, um, of course, we don't have a crystal ball in front of us, but as we hopefully move out of social restrictions in the next sort of four to five weeks, now that the freedom date of June the 21st has been confirmed to have been pushed back by the Prime Minister, um, what sort of future can, do you think that the construction sector and the architecture industry can look forward to? And do you think there is room for certainty to return in some way? Oh, yes, definitely. We're seeing it right now. Um, so, you know, people in the hospitality industry, wedding venues, they have to prepare. They have to get their staff back up and trained who have been, you know, haven't been working. You know, these, these are there's a lot going on already as people try to get themselves ready for this next period. And now they're saying, how do we deal with <laughs> uncertainty and it might not be an uncertainty that finishes even in June, you know, it might be later. Um, you know, the reality is it's a changing series of facts that we're being presented with. Um, so how do you as business owners and private individuals create resilience? And I, and I think that that is the word of the moment really is resilience, social resilience, economic resilience, environmental resilience. And we all have a role to play in that as a business strategy that, you know, weddings is a great example in many ways to illustrate this because, you know, there is an industry that's about people wanting to get together, have a social contact and celebration and build those important social resilience networks, if you like. Um, but they've been delayed. You know, the, the strength of family and friends within a society, particularly at a time like now, you know, couldn't be more important. And so, therefore, you have the situation where you know that there is a long order book, if you like, of people wanting to make this happen for themselves and each other. Mm. And yet, they're not quite sure how to do it. And yes, there's been a lot more online. You see so many things online, um, both the you know, civic marriages, um, private, um, you know, meeting each other, as well as you know, more formal churches and religious, you know, organizations. Um, they've embraced this in a way that they hadn't before, but they're doing so. Um, and the notion of care as everybody's responsibility, I, I think is fascinating. And that goes all the way into the office to, you know, how do we work best together apart um, in relationship to our environment? You know, how do we do that in different sectors do demand different things. Yeah, so uh, I see that people will plan slightly differently, um, most certainly, yeah. And for your... Was that specific? Yes, of course, Paul, and just for your sort of practice um, specifically now, um, where hopefully do you see yourselves being this time in 2022, all being well with that economic recovery that we've spoken about? Well, what what we're starting to see already is we have a particular model of thinking where there's a a sort of an integrated nature of values, whether they're use values, financial values, social values, environmental values, identity values, cultural values. So this recombination of these is already happening. 
if I'm an organization that has historically done one thing, had people on site and we're face-to-face in big numbers, how do I do that in smaller numbers and how do I spread my thing? So what we're seeing is a sort of more integrated notion. So for us, we'll see more regeneration. We'll see different mixes of use. We'll be getting under the hood of businesses, as we always have, and see what sort of invisible structures help them tick. And that comes back to making you know the social resilience, if you like, the demographic resilience for them. Um, and that's across state. And that includes for residential as well. How do you live? How do you? What sort of spaces do you need in your house? How do you use space better? How do you use outdoor space better? Um, how do you look at offices that are perhaps outside your home but local, rather than having to commute so far? That meets that ticks lots of boxes. Not just transport. Not just well-being. Not just socialistic. All these sorts of things. We, we'll see. A, I suspect we will see different combinations of models here um and um yeah and i'm already seeing all this um whether it is through the care homes whether it's a regeneration of a mixed use 22 acre site whether it is um yeah with an office or private homes or museums and cafes we're already seeing the buds of this um so uh yes depending on what the uh, (laughs) opening is uh, is and how much certainty people are allowed to plan for uh, yeah, I believe 2022 could be yeah it could be very exciting as we play catch up and people adapt to these new models of looking forward really. And let's certainly hope it is going to be exciting times for the industry as we hopefully move out of social restrictions and leave COVID behind for good. Um, Paul, we are just about out of time on today's programme, unfortunately, but I have to say I've thoroughly enjoyed having you join us on the programme. And I actually think it would be really beneficial, just given how eye-opening this has been, to welcome you back onto the show perhaps in the months to come when we have a little bit more certainty just to catch up on how the sector is uh, getting on at that point. Be delighted. Thank you. Yes, likewise, Paul. Thank you again for well uh, coming on to the uh, the programme today. And just given that we're not quite out of the woods with the COVID situation as it is yet, uh, do continue as well to take care and stay safe with everything still going on. Thank you. It was a pleasure to welcome Paul Vick, founder and principal of Paul Vick Architect in London, onto the programme today. Uh, Coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, to discuss his take on the events of the last 14 months and his hopes for the weeks ahead. Uh, That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the 
the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at 
regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and... Um, and the U.S. and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed 
without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation not incarceration it was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well those who went over the top i think soon got a very substantial pushback and one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate people could say i'm terribly sorry we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment that that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks. And uh, 
we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think 
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition, nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies, uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent, uh, professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.